I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12 this morning, starting in verse 1. Matthew 12, 1, is one of those uh, places where the chapter divisions in your Bible are a little unhelpful. Matthew didn't put the chapter and verse numbers in here when he wrote his Gospel. He didn't write a great big 12 here before he, he went on. Those were added much later to help people find their way around, like a GPS or a a map. No. Uh, and putting a big number here between chapter 11 and chapter 12 uh, can, be, can hide the fact that both sides of this chapter division have a lot to say about rest. R-E-S-T. Rest. I think that chapter 11, in fact, flows right into chapter 12 without skipping a beat or really changing the subject at all. Last week, we heard Jesus issue that wonderful invitation that you guys all knew, but I got wrong with the hide the word verse this morning. He said, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what we looked at last week. Have you taken Jesus up on this invitation? He holds out his hand and says, come to me. Have you come to him? Have you taken his yoke upon yourself and become his disciple, learning from him, walking with him? Even this last week, have you found his yoke to be easy and his burden to be light, to find your rest in him? It's wonderful. This rest that Jesus offers is so wonderful that in today's passage, Jesus actually claims to be the king of rest. The king of rest. In verse 8, in fact, Jesus will claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath, which means a lot of things, a lot to talk about this morning. But the Sabbath, as it was given to Israel, was at heart a day of rest, a day of ceasing of work, a day for cessation of labor, a day of desisting, abstaining from work, a day of rest. And Jesus comes along and he claims to be the Lord of that day, the boss of the day of rest, the boss of rest, the Lord of rest, the King of rest. What an interesting juxtaposition of ideas, isn't that? Lord, I mean, that's power, that's kingly authority of Shabbat, of ceasing, of stopping, of peace, of rest. The king of rest. When we think of powerful kings, we don't always think about resting, do we? No, we tend, about, we tend to think about working, serving. If you serve a powerful king, you work for him most of the time, right? What does the powerful king want today? Well, this king, he wants you to rest. He wants you to cease. He wants you to stop, to take a break, to put your feet up, to not work at getting a leg up, to not climb the ladder today, to cut it out, to cease striving. In fact, he gives rest to people, this king. He knows you. 
He knows you're weary and you're burdened. And He will give you rest. He calls it rest for your souls. Not just stop work for a day. But for your soul to rest. He's the king of rest. Most of the time when we think about Sabbath, what do you think about? If I just say the word Sabbath, what do, what do you immediately think? You think rules, right? What you do and what you don't do on a certain day of the week, the do's and the don'ts. What are you allowed to do and what are you not allowed to do on the Sabbath? Well, that's part of the problem here in Matthew 12. The Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath and breaking the Sabbath rules. But that's not the most important thing to get out of chapter 12. It's not, chapter 12 is not really about whether you ought to have a weekly day off or not. It's not. I would argue you should, but not from this story. It's not about that. This story is about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? We've said all along in the Gospel of Matthew that it's a theological biography. That's what a gospel is. It's a theological biography of the most compelling person who ever lived. Matthew is intent on revealing to us who Jesus is. What Jesus said, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, what Jesus was all about. Who is this person, Jesus? And we've seen all along that the big question in Matthew really could be stated like, who does Jesus think he is? Who does this guy think he is? Well, this story answers that question in a big surprising way that can be summed up with the words, Jesus thinks he's the king of rest. Let's pray together and see how that works itself out. Lord, we've just sung that we are who you say we are. Now we're going to see that you are who you say you are. Help us, Lord, to get it and for it to change our lives. We pray it in this name, the name of Jesus, the King of rest. Amen. We said, we've said for the last two weeks that the, this conflict, the conflict is starting to heat up for Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. From, from like chapter 11 to all the way to the crucifixion, Jesus gets into more and more trouble. Jesus makes many, many people, especially the Jewish leaders, more and more uncomfortable. It's not that they don't understand what he's saying as much as they do understand what he's saying and they don't like what he's saying. So they begin to look for ways to get Jesus into hot water. And here's one. They accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law on the Sabbath, right? If you break the law on the Sabbath, you can't be the Messiah. You can't be everything you're claiming to be, right? All we have to do is find a way to trap Jesus and point out what he's doing wrong, and then the problem will die down. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, for us, that doesn't sound like any big deal, right? I mean, so what? We might think, if, if you were to look at what they were doing and think it was a crime, what would you think the crime might be? Stealing, right? I mean, you're going, they're not going through their fields, and they're having some fast food, right? It's really fast food. 
little cereal in your breakfast, right? Well, this is not stealing. The law said that farmers should leave the edges of their fields, especially along the roads, unharvested so that the poor and travelers can eat along the way. This is, you don't have a refrigerator, okay? This is a way of of taking care of the poor and the travelers. So these guys are not stealing, and the Pharisees are not concerned about stealing, and it's also that they're not walking too far on a Sabbath day, because they aren't complaining about that. That's not what they're all upset about. What are these Pharisees so upset about? They're upset that the disciples were what? Working. Does this, this, Jesus, stop those guys. They're working on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but this does not look like work to me. But they had all these rules. The Pharisees had made all these rules to make sure that nobody did any work on the Sabbath day. The rule was no work. God gave them that rule, right? Fourth commandment. But they had made a whole bunch of rules about the rule to make sure that that rule got followed. In fact, it had become a lot of work to make sure that nobody worked. You know what I'm saying? Their rules said, their rules about the rule said, no picking, no threshing, no winnowing on the Sabbath. Which is a good rule for a farmer generally to follow. No picking, no threshing, no winnowing on the Sabbath. If you do that, you're really getting into the, the territory of making a buck, Right? So if you had a little grain field, fast food, and you picked up the heads, and you rubbed them open, and you tossed off the chaff, and you tossed the rest in your mouth, you were working. Don't do that. Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, how would you have answered the Pharisees if you were Jesus and his crew? What would have been your answer back to them? You might have said, I don't think that's really work, guys. I mean, if you're bold. Or you might have said, really? You're going to get upset about that? This might be what you or the disciples might say if you were Jesus. In some of the other Gospels, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. That's a good answer. You could use that one here. But that's not where Jesus goes here. Because Jesus knows that this isn't really about the Sabbath at all. Jesus knows that it's really about who he is. So Jesus makes it all about who he thinks he is. Look at verse 3. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have never come up with that one. I mean, was that, that's what you would say? Back to the Pharisees? Haven't you read in your Bible about David and the consecrated bread? How does that relate to the heads of grain on a Sabbath day? Well, first off, I would never be bold enough to say to the Pharisees, haven't you read your Bibles? But Jesus isn't afraid to go there. Don't you guys know this? You're the Pharisees. You're going to attack me, get ready for some pushback, and it's going to be over the Bible. And so he reminds them of this story from 1 Samuel chapter 21. Do you remember that from a few years back when we were studying 1 Samuel together? David and his companions were desperately hungry. They were starving. And they ate the consecrated bread, which was technically something they should not have done. It was meant for the priests. And David said to the 
the high priest, could we have that bread? And they took all the bread and they ate it. And tradition says that it was on a Sabbath. Probably was because it, it yet hadn't, it hadn't been turned over for the new week. What did the Lord say about David doing that in the Old Testament? Anybody remember? Do you remember how the Lord came down on David for having eaten that bread? He didn't come down on David for eating that bread. David did not get in trouble with God for eating that bread. Scripture does not condemn David for eating that bread. But how is this an answer to the Pharisees here? It's an answer to the Pharisees if Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. From the lesser to the greater. It feels like he's arguing from the greater, the consecrated bread, to the lesser, the hand-picked cereal, right? But that's not actually the way this is flowing. He's actually arguing from the lesser, David and his companions, to the greater, Jesus and his companions. If David and his, here's how the argument goes. You with me? If David and his friends could eat which, that which was technically wrong and it would be okay, how much more can Jesus and his friends eat something that you could easily argue isn't even technically wrong? Just wrong in these guys' eyes. In other words, Jesus is greater than David, which is a bold claim. See where he goes? He says, oh, they're eating in the fields? It's okay. I'm greater than David. That's his argument. And then he pushes it further. Verse 5. Or haven't you read? Come on, guys. Haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? Did you ever think about that, he says? Who really works on the Sabbath? Right? Well, these priests do. It's the priest's job to work on the Sabbath. How does that work? You mean they're in the temple and they're, and they're actually breaking the law by doing their job in the temple? You see how that works? That's what Jesus is saying. He's, he's saying, have you thought about that? Do they desecrate the Sabbath? Well, technically they're working, but technically they're supposed to work, so it's okay. Do you see where it's going, though? See, the Pharisees are saying, who does he think he is? Does he think he's greater than the priests in the temple? Jesus says, yeah. And more than that, verse 6, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. That's a bold claim. And we don't think about it. But imagine the most important object in your whole world. The the most important place that you can think of, the most important thing in your life, a thing. And imagine someone coming along and saying, he's greater than that. That's what the temple was to these people. The temple stood for so much to these people. If that temple was knocked down, it would mean it was the end of the world to them. It stood for the people themselves. It stood for Judaism itself. It stood for the the people of God and the, the, the worship of God and their very identity. And Jesus says, I tell you that one greater than all that is here. Let that sink in. That's his answer to whether or not it's lawful, whether or not they're breaking the law to eat that cereal. He says, oh yeah, it's no big deal. I'm greater than the temple. And then he goes on, 
Back to Scripture, verse 7. If you had known what these words mean, Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, these disciples. He says, you guys, you don't understand the Bible. Have you been reading your Bible? You don't understand mercy. You don't understand compassion. You guys just don't get it. People are more important than stupid rules. The whole point of the Old Testament, the whole point of the law that you're so big on is love. That's the point of the law, is love. Now get this. Jesus says that he knows this because he's not only greater than King David, and he's not only greater than the priests, and not only greater even than the temple, Jesus believes that he is greater than the law itself. Look at verse 8. For the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I'll be the one to decide what is right and wrong on the Sabbath. Thank you very much. Because the Sabbath is my day. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the King of the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists for me, Jesus says. And I will interpret the Sabbath and I will apply the Sabbath to my people. Do you see how bold that is? They're going to they're gonna go after him for his disciples eating this. He's going to come back at them with the boldest claim that they could imagine. Can you imagine someone saying that about some other law? What if I got up this morning and I said, I am the Lord of the U.S. Constitution. I will say what it means. It exists for me, and I will interpret it and apply it to my people. You would be showing me the door, right? What's that? Or what if I said, how about gravity? The law of gravity. What if I said, I am the Lord of the law of gravity. I will say what it means. It exists for me, and I will interpret it and apply it to my people. You'd be showing me to a straitjacket, wouldn't you? This guy comes along and he says, I am the king of rest. I will say what it means. Rest exists for me. And I will interpret rest and I will apply rest to my people. He's basically claiming to be God, isn't he? That's what he's saying. I mean, who is more, who, who is the Lord of the fourth commandment? but God himself. I have only three points this morning, and here's number one. Believe in the king of rest. Believe in the king of rest. That's that's the whole point of his identity, isn't it? Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? I know you came in this morning and you already believed all this about Jesus, but put yourself in these Pharisees' shoes. Put yourself in these disciples' shoes and hearing this. He just said that he is the Lord of the fourth commandment and that he can interpret it how he wants and apply it how he wants because he's the king of rest. This is who Jesus believes he is? What do you think? Do you believe that Jesus is great, David's greater son? Do you believe that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood? Do you believe that Jesus is greater than the temple? Do you believe that Jesus is the Lord of rest? I do. And I invite you to believe it too. The fact is that many people do not. They don't believe that Jesus is the king of rest. 
that he has the say over rest or work or anything. And that was true back then as well. Look at verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You see what's going on? They want to trap him. And they want to use the Sabbath to do it. Now, who are the real Sabbath breakers? Those are going to take the Sabbath and try to use it to break Jesus. They're tempting him. They can see that he wants to heal this guy. I think in the other Gospels, he actually asked the shriveled hand guy to stand up in the middle of them. And they, they, they want Jesus to say that healing somebody on the Sabbath is okay so that he can get into trouble. They did not agree with this. This is the work of a doctor, right? If you're a doctor and somebody comes before you and you're going to help them heal on the Sabbath, you're doing your job. Is that okay? Should you do the work of healing somebody on the day when we shouldn't work? You see how kind of messed up this is? Can this man work? In this society, there's very few jobs for him to do. Almost all labor was manual labor, and he's got one hand that works. But could you do the work of healing him on the day when nobody should work? What would you say? Well, here's what the Lord of rest says. Look at verse 11. He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Well, yeah. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see how he's arguing there? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater again. He likes to do that. This time, the lesser thing is what? Sheep. And, the, and what's the greater thing? Congratulations, you're worth more than sheep. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep. Therefore, of course it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Why would you not think that way? Of course it's good to show mercy on the Sabbath, to show compassion on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Just as sound as the other. Couldn't tell the two apart. Wait, which one was the withered one again? But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Wow. What kind of a reaction is that? What hard hearts they had. You can see that this isn't about what you can and can't do on a particular day of the week, right? It's all about who is Jesus and do we receive that or not? Do we believe that or not? Do you believe that Jesus is the king of rest? Think about this. Jesus didn't even do any work, did he? Did he he say, well, show me your arm. Let me get some medicine. Put a splint on that. Did he do any of that? No, he just spoke the word and it was healed. And these people want to get rid of him? By the way, Jesus knows that he's jumping into their trap and it doesn't bother him a bit. It's all part of his father's plan. He chose to go this road, down this road a long time before. They may think that they've caught Jesus, but really Jesus has caught them, and in doing so, he catches us. 
Notice how he's given this man rest, hasn't he? He's given him the ability to work again. He's also given them a little taste of the kingdom, the kingdom of rest. He's taken away a little bit of that man's worry and weariness and burden and restored him. Verse 13, completely restored, just as sound as the other. That's a picture of the kingdom that is coming. Here's application point number two. Follow the king of rest. Don't just believe that he is the king of rest, but join his kingdom and live out the values of that kingdom. For example, value people over stupid rules every time. You got a choice come up in front of you? Well, we got this stupid rule, and we got this person. Go with the person every time. That's what our king is like, and what his kingdom is like. Now, I'm not saying to throw out the law. The whole point of the law is love. But if we aren't loving people, then we aren't doing the law, even if we say we are, following the fine print, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. The Lord of rest desires mercy, not sacrifice, compassion, not ritualistic rule following. Verse 12 again, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So if we, are king, if we are citizens of the kingdom of rest, it's lawful for us to do good to others. In fact, it's expected. Are we doing that? Or do we find every excuse to work around it? Last week, I got a call from someone who needed some gas money and some food. And it was really inconvenient. The call came at the very end of the evening for me. I wanted to sit down, have a quiet evening with my wife. I did not want to go out and help somebody who probably got themselves into this problem themselves. But I said to myself, what if that was me? And what if it was the Lord who was getting the call? And the Lord said, ah, I don't want to go out. I want to have a quiet evening in. What would Jesus do? What would my king do? So I got up and I went out to meet them and help them in the name of our king. I was trying to follow the king of rest. It actually meant that I lost a little of what I considered to be rest. But what did Jesus give up to bring me rest? He gave his whole life. You ever think about that? When Jesus holds out his hand and says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you ever think about what that rest costs Jesus to give us? He is the king of rest. Not just by the creation, but by the cross. Verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him. And he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. He's aware that they want to kill him. He knows it. So he withdraws. But he doesn't stop. Many follow the king of rest, and he gives them rest. He heals all of their sick. He just doesn't blow a trumpet about it. He's not a televangelist. He's not like any other pretend Messiah out there. He knows it's not time for him to go public, so he tells him to keep it quiet. But he keeps healing. 
He heals this person, and then he heals that person, and then he heals this person, and then he heals that person. It says he healed all their sick. Everywhere he goes, people are following him, and everywhere he goes, the kingdom comes in little tiny pieces. Not just that one man with the shriveled hand, but just over and over and over again, all of their sick. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He'll not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Point number three and last, rest in the king of rest. Matthew loves his Old Testament, doesn't he? We've seen that again and again. And he loves that word fulfill, right? Verse 17. This is the longest quote from the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew says that Jesus healed like this, powerfully yet quietly, to fulfill Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Matthew recognized that Jesus is the suffering servant of the messianic prophecies of Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah at length to show us. Sure sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Read Isaiah 42, 1-4 and say, who does this sound like? Sounds like Jesus. What a unique and compelling person. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. Who does that sound like? What's that sound like? It sounds like Jesus' baptism to me. From Matthew chapter 3, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. He says, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations, to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, to people like, I don't know, you and me. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He proclaims this justice, but he doesn't get all huffy about his rights. He heals people quietly. Listen to this. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Hear this, friends. I love that description. This is a lot like last week when he said that he is gentle and humble of heart. What good is a bruised reed? Right? How many? Yeah, I went to go get some firewood this morning. It was over on, uh, away from my furnace. And there was a, a twig in my way. And I just went, snap, and I dropped it on the ground. Okay? Ooh, okay. That's not bad, okay? But, but what if that twig was a person? Somebody who's kind of a loser. Somebody who's marginalized. Somebody who's, who's hurting. Somebody who's got nothing to offer. It's already bruised. It's, it was already bent. It's so easy to just kind of toss it away. He doesn't do that. Jesus never does that. You, you might be a bruised reed today. You might be hurting. You might have been buffeted by the world. And the world has said, I'm about done with you. Jesus doesn't do that. A smoldering wick. He won't snuff out. How easy it is to just go, right? Or just to ignore it. But that's not what he does with a smoldering wick. Are you a smoldering wick? You feel like you're just barely hanging on. There's almost no light there. This is what Jesus does with you. Right? He cups the smoldering wick. So that that when the wind comes, it doesn't just go out. 
And if he blows on it, it's a real gentle, just a breath, so that it comes back to life. Do you see how you can trust him? Do you see how you can rest in him? Do you see how you can put yourself in his hands? And friends, he's not going to change. He's like this all the time with every bruised reed and every smoldering wick. It says here, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. Till that kingdom comes. In, the, in his name, the nations will put their hope. They will rest in the king of rest now and forever. 